Hello, and welcome to the Book Bat Podcast, where we help you navigate and explore the world of Christian fantasy books and other fantasy books. I'm your co-host, Carlissa J. And I'm your other co-host, Jason. And today, we're going to be talking about our picks for underrated books. So books that we think do not get as much attention as they deserve. We'll tell you what we like about these books and why we think they are underrated. Give you some potential reasons as to why you may not know of them. Yeah, we're going to alternate. Yeah, so you go first. Yeah. Go first. <laughs> Number one is Fantasties by George MacDonald. Fantasties is the book that C.S. Lewis credited with giving him. He described it as an awareness of holiness. Um, I would describe it from my own reading as a sense of enchantment and an awareness of an exploration of enchantment and disenchantment. It's sense of magic in nature. I want to say something like that. A different sort of magic than either spellcasting or party trick kind of magic. But this just sense that nature is brimming with incredible things like Nerds tree spirits. <laughs> Oh, I thought it was going to be, you know, nerd speak for science. <laughs> no, not quite like that. Scientists speak out in protest. <laughs> um, and being more aware of who you are in spiritual realities and stuff, something like that. I don't really know how to explain it if you haven't read it. So why it isn't more widely recognized, mainly because people have forgotten about George MacDonald, which is very sad. Because everyone assumes that Tolkien and Lewis just woke up one morning and then decided, I'm going to write a fantastic book and then proceeded to do so. We forget that there were people that inspired them. And stories that inspired them. And George MacDonald was a big influence on C.S. Lewis. Okay, so I guess it's my turn. So I'll keep it around that era and mine. Well, one of mine is The Children of Hurin by J.R. Tolkien. I'll just not go over the, a synopsis of the story because I don't know how to give a synopsis without kind of spoiling most of it. What? It's... I don't know how you would describe it in short form without spoiling something pretty serious. The reasons why I think most people haven't read it is one, because, well, it hasn't been made into a movie yet because <laughs> it, as shocking as it was for me, I've learned that for... A surprising number of people, they haven't read any of Tolkien's books unless it was made into a movie. It's just like the books were out and they were awesome before the movies. The movies didn't change anything. So, yeah, no, people are weird. So that's one is just the visibility isn't as high as the two that everyone holds up in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Uh, second of all, it, in all fairness, isn't in actual book i would say because it's essentially a bunch of scrap writings by tolkien stitched together by his son christopher into a semi-cohesive narrative and because it it is a essentially a patchwork of notes and stuff like that it's not as cohesive as it could have been i'll give it that but also it is a straight-up tragedy and in all fairness, a lot of Tolkien stuff tends to lean towards having more tragic type elements to them. But no, no, no. This story is a full-on tragedy more than anything else. I kept reading it going, 
Okay, where's that happy ending to wrap it all up? And nope, it just got dark. <laughs> you thought it was dark? No, we're going to make it darker. So, yeah, I think that doesn't help selling it when it doesn't have a happy ending. Why would you say people should read it, though? There's nothing wrong with tragedies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's quite bluntly one factor in it. You know, we got to get over our happy endings. And you know what? Tragedies are okay, too, you know. And also, I would need to reread The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings to double check this. But in The Children of Hurin especially, it really delves deep into different emotions in humanity and how that drives us clouds our thinking and sometimes it pushes us onto great deeds and other times it pushes us into horrible mistakes and one thing that i know you pointed out about not just this book but just tolkien's it seems to be a common thread in tolkien's writings is sometimes all those great deeds that happen in his world happen because somebody's messed up pretty badly so the great deed was necessary whereas if the mistake had been made the great deed would have been necessary in the first place moving on all right my next book is lilith also by george mcdonald another george mcdonald book george mcdonald had some bucks (laughs) (laughs) so i would say i would agree with those who suggest that lilith had some influence on the chronicles of narnia I think there's aspects of it that just remind me of kind of a sense of Narnia to it. And I really enjoy Mr. Raven. He's very entertaining. Like in tone, in themes, settings? I want to say some settings, some little, I don't know how to put little quirks here and there. No, that's fair. That just feel feel Narnia-ish. In all fairness, you read... And I, I know I'm throwing Tolkien in here a lot too, but in both Tolkien and Lewis's writings, one stuff that we tend to gloss over is all those little quirky things that they just kind of throw in there that I think a lot of modern day writers tend to not throw in unless it's for a punchline, you know, to keep things moving along. Because I remember that's one thing that when you've published your stories, that's one thing your editor you know, kept on harping is we got to keep things crisp and moving along whenever you meander too much or threw something in there that maybe didn't serve the overall story. I remember your editor more than once was kind of like, we got to get rid of this just to keep it crisp and moving. Whereas, yeah, and both Tolkien and Lewis are definitely guilty of wandering. I I would say that those, that crisp and needing to move thing though is more of a modern north american writing quirk so it doesn't seem like classic books <laughs> care about stuff like that it's more about the narrative and the not setting. just the narrative well though, just but... building the sense of the world i would say but i would also say playing with the english language and <laughs> like puns pushing it to its best yeah sometimes with puns like alice in wonderland by lewis carroll it's extremely punny <laughs> You really got to get your dad to read that. Get him some new material. (laughs) Uh, But between either puns or aiming to be more poetic, like George MacDonald wanted to be a poet initially, and apparently his earliest fame was um, a book of poetry. It's what started him in becoming more well-known. 
And Tolkien cared a lot about language because he studied language for a living, too. Okay, I think we kind of jumped off Sorry, subject we got here. really distracted, yeah. Of course we did. Anywho, so why... I think we remember why you liked it. <laughs> um, so why do you think it's not popular beyond the whole most people don't know George MacDonald thing? Beyond that, it's the book that generally if people have only one thing to say about it, they say... This is the book where George MacDonald is more blatant about his universalism. So his belief that eventually everybody will be purified of their sins and rescued by God. But I don't know. I'd almost question, like I haven't read the book so I can't make this call. But I kind of question how many Christians would actually pick up on that and draw offense to it. I think it is it blatant states enough? it obviously enough, but it is... It's like part of the narrative to me. It's part of the mm. plot line more so than a preachy outright, pound the this table. This is what you need to believe in order to enjoy this story kind of thing. Okay. It's more of a the story is called Lilith because one of the main characters is Lilith, but she's the bad guy and the story is over time it becomes about moving her away from her evil and okay. saving her. Okay. Even though she's been this evil figure for thousands of years. <laughs> oh, is it my turn again? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'll go with this one then. So my next one is a trilogy because I cheat horrendously. And, okay, you, some people can argue this one with me and I don't care. You're wrong. I'm right. This is underrated. It is the generally referred to as the Thrawn Trilogy. In Star Wars, and this is in the oh, what do they call it? Hold it, I got that's why I got the books here. Um, yeah, the legends, the Star Wars legends. So these are books that were written in the 90, early 90s, I believe. So for those of you who don't know the timeline for movie releases, this is about 10 years after the original trilogy episodes four, five, and six were released. But about 10 years before the prequels were released. And back then, Lucas allowed people to write Star Wars novels as much as they wanted. And he didn't do a whole lot to hinder them. The flip side was is that he had he reserved the right to either take from their ideas or ignore them as much as he wanted. So essentially, they were just out there making more Star Wars money and... Lucas could pick and choose if he want, liked any of their ideas or not for their any projects he would do later. Anywho, it's a trilogy generally referred to as the Thrawn trilogy, I believe. And book one's Heir to the Empire. Book two is Dark Force Rising. And book three is The Last Command. Huh. That's actually almost like the titles for the original three movies now that I think about it. Huh. Cool. Anyway, they're at my Timothy's on, and I don't know. It's a very intriguing story, in part, be in large part, because of Thrawn, Grand Admiral Thrawn, who's the main villain, I'd say, in this story. In part, because he's a different type of villain compared to most villains that you find in Star Wars. Most villains in Star Wars tend to be some version of a power-hungry brute. In one form or another. Whereas Thrawn 
doesn't have any sort of obvious power. His his strength comes from his cunning and his genius, but he's on the flip side, he's not overly arrogant in it like you would typically see in most. He's almost like um what's the race Spock is in Star Trek? What race is that? Oh, I don't remember what they're called. Whatever. The point is, he's almost like that in that he's almost emo- this cold, emotionless being who can just, like, cold calculating, out-strategize anyone. And so, yeah, he's like this very subtly ominous threat that the cast can't get rid of. And it's an interesting way to watch the main cast of Luke, Han, Leia adjust and move on with after defeating the emperor and trying to establish a new order in the galaxy it yeah it's very well written it's builds on the world really nicely or at least the world of the original trilogy (laughs) (laughs) you kind of have to forget that the prequels ever happened or or the sequel trilogy you kind of have to forget all that stuff i'd say it's underrated in part in large part because when disney bought lucasfilm that's when they made all this stuff non-canon because beforehand it was canon unless Lucas said otherwise and he hadn't said otherwise up until that point so when Disney bought it Disney is in essence wiped it out and but the books were not entirely forgotten I mean Thrawn has finally made it yeah he's into the shows yeah he's he was a main villain in the animated show Star Wars Rebels and it looks like he is going to be the main villain in the Ahsoka show on Disney+. Plus. So that'll be interesting to see how that works out because it looks like they'll be pulling from this trilogy, though, except they just won't be able to pull as much as I want to because, you know, of the way Disney has butchered Luke and Leia and Han and all of them. Ah! <laughs> so the next book that I want to talk about is Out of the Silent Planet by C.S. Lewis. I've read this book. I can talk about it. (laughs) I enjoy the exploration aspect of being on another world. This is uh, the first book in C.S. Lewis's Cosmic Trilogy. I thought it was called a Space Trilogy. So it's been called both, but from reading uh, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, he pointed out a little nitpick between cosmic versus space that his oh i forget the author of that book his opinion would be c.s lewis would want it to be called the cosmic trilogy and i think that makes sense okay fine because <laughs> the quote finish there's a lot of the space in space except it does part of it is taking a different perspective on space where space is like this ocean of life then planets are birthed in this living ocean do, do they get into that in the first book yeah they that's part of his meditations while he's traveling through space to Malikandra, oh okay i must have forgotten that part okay sorry i thought that might have been something in the second or third book so a lot of people know about the cosmic trilogy and i do see it advertised in christian book magazine but i don't get the impression that many people have actually read it and i think it's because you generally see the trilogy as a whole and the third book in the trilogy, That Hideous Strength, it's is huge. as long as the first and second book combined. I thought it was bigger than them. Maybe it was a bit bigger. 
Anyway, it makes the entire trilogy look a lot more intimidating than it is if you just don't read that it is strength, <laughs> which is a bit of an odd story that you don't need to read to understand or enjoy the other two. Well, it is the last one in all fairness. Yeah. I would say another reason why the Cosmic Trilogy as a whole and more specifically out of this silent planet hasn't taken off is because it's not aimed at kids. Oh, that's worth saying. It's not aimed at a family audience. All of C.S. Lewis's fiction outside of the Chronicles of Narnia. That's what caught my attention in reading all this C.S. Lewis stuff. Only the Chronicles of Narnia is designed for a family-friendly audience. Nothing else is. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess that was one thing I failed to point out about the children of Hurin. Like, well, technically, oh, yeah. none of Tolkien's stories are really family-friendly. The children of Hurin is one of those where it's like, okay, the other ones are kind of in the gray zone. This one's definitely not. And I'd say Out of the Silent Planet is definitely not family-friendly. But... I would say more so in tone with Out of the Silent Planet because, like, correct me if I'm wrong, sweetie, but there's no graphic violence, no... Nothing gratuitous by any means. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that if Out of the Silent Planet is any indication, I would say the whole space trilogy is a lot more philosophical and thinker-type mm. stories, So, which don't the... translate well mm. to for a family audience, even if... The rest mm. of the material is fine. I would say Paralandra is that's the second so one. Mu- that's the second one. A lot of it is very philosophical. I'd say the and first one. I'd say Out of the Silent Planet is philosophical too, and it's leaning. Yeah, but I would say C.S. Lewis's works in general. He toned it down for the more. Chronicles I, of Narnia. I guess Narnia. he may probably turned it down for <laughs> Chronicles of Narnia. So, long story short, we've quickly decided that, in part because of some of the stuff that is covered in. Out of the Silent Planet, it can never be made into a quote-unquote Christian movie, so henceforth, it will never be popular. You could just blot out some stuff, like make sure they're always wearing clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on. Because they are naked in multiple places. (laughs) Oh, come on. on. You act as though, oh, Lewis is dwelling on the fact he's just kind of like, and the spaceship got so hot on the trip to and from the planet, so they went with Sans clothes, more or less as a survival mechanism. <laughs> and it's not like he dwells on it. It's just like, yep, this is what happened. What do you yep. do? Don't knock survival, man. <laughs> what would you rather have the main character do? Hmm. It was a choice between keeping my pants on or survival. I chose to keep my pants on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, your turn. Okay. And my next one, I'm pulling out another trilogy here. It is the trilogy Tales of the Diversity, written by, let's see who wrote this. Hmm. Carlos J. That's you. Shameless promotion, people. That's how this <laughs> business works. <laughs> but being seriously, Tales of the Diversity is made up of three books currently. Are you planning on doing any more? You know what? I keep saying that I'm done, but then I have dreams about writing another one (laughs) or dreams where I write another one. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. So as of now, it's just three. We'll see what happens. Maybe we all peer pressure her. She'll write another one. Anyway, so they are The Quest, The Loss, and The Promise. 
you ever think about taking the out of the titles and just have quest, loss, and promise? No. <laughs> okay. There you go. Behind the scenes, people. <laughs> the reason why I like these books, if I'm even perfectly honest, I yeah, a little bit, is because you wrote them. But the truth of the matter is, these were actually, I would argue, my first real foray into more of a thinker-type novels. Okay, so it definitely starts off as a more typical fantasy-type story, just in terms of tone and stuff like that. But somewhere along the lines, it shifts. And not in a way that's disingenuous to the story, but in a way that a lot of fantasy novels don't. And then you have different characters dealing with difficult situations, difficult emotions, and stuff that can't just be simply explained away and then, you know, at the end of the day, we know what the right thing is to do and by golly, we're going to do it. And then, yeah, you did a fantastic job of creating a unique world and setting. I personally really appreciated the fact that uh, you essentially created all the wor- creatures in this world from scratch. None of these are direct humanoids or whatever. It is Age of Sail, which is another thing that I like, as opposed to the typical medieval type setting or modern day or sci-fi. It's Age of Sail. Let's face it. If there is Age of Sail stuff, it's mostly pirate related, like yo-ho and a bottle of rum. <laughs> In a way, it challenges me as a reader to kind of just see things beyond this the inherent simplicity I think we go for with our happy ending stories. It's a story that more sticks with you and makes you think about it more. Thank you. <laughs> and no, this wasn't planned as a me flattering up Carlos to get brownie points here. <laughs> <laughs> and why it's underrated, quite simply put, I don't think enough people know it exists. Yeah, because I haven't done enough marketing. And also, you people out there, you that's right, you listening to this right now, you guys haven't helped out. I know you didn't know you were <laughs> supposed to, but you should. So help her out, people. Tell all your friends about this book. And this trilogy, yeah. Yeah, this trilogy. There you go. Because I personally think these are very good books, and guess what? It doesn't matter that they weren't published by Tyndale or something like that. <laughs> that's right, Tyndale. Come at me. <laughs> Wow. All right. And the final book is Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. Oh, yes. Lewis's favorite book that everybody hated. Yeah. So (laughs) during C.S. Lewis's lifetime, uh, he considered this to be his most well-written novel, but it wasn't that well-received when it came out. I think maybe it just wasn't what people were expecting. Yeah. Darn expectations. Apparently, a lot of C.S. Lewis fans today, there, there's a decent amount out there who consider it his best novel. But, and But those are like hardcore yeah. fans who actually go... Who have actually read all of his novels. Yeah, who've actually read all his stuff as opposed to just reading the Chronicles of Narnia and maybe a few of his more popular allegorical type stuff and then just call it a day. Mm-hmm. I, I think in terms of quality of storytelling and philosophical thought... Um, this is his best written novel. And in terms of character development, Arul is a very uh, complex character. Very well done. I don't know how much you want to get into spoilers about this story, which feels weird to say, seeing how this story has 
how old is this novel? Like 50 plus years by now? Easy? Yeah, I'm trying to remember when it was released. In the 50s, I want to say. Oh, geez, that's 70 plus. Yeah, I could be wrong. A lot longer than we've been around. (laughs) I would say there's a couple things that keep it from really getting the recognition it deserves. And the most obvious one is that it is... Like people, some people will complain about the Chronicles of Narnia not being Christian enough. If the Chronicles of Narnia isn't Christian enough for you, or if it's barely Christian enough for you, Till We Have Faces is not going to seem Christian enough. It does dive much more into pagan mythology and talks about the gods when exploring the nature of divinity for the most part until towards the end. Hmm. But I don't know, like what... Okay, why do you think that's such a big deal? I think for a lot of Christians... Like, I'm sorry, but this is a fantasy story, so Mm. it shouldn't... If it's fantasy, it shouldn't have to mimic real life. Why can't you have gods with a little G in your fantasy story? Why not? Like, quite frankly, if we saw, you know, angels and demons, I'm pretty sure we would refer to them as gods with a little G. And yeah, it's is more exploring uh, the nature, God's nature, except through the eyes of people who have been raised with the belief in many gods hmm. and trying to sort through the understanding of multiple gods and stuff like that. So it makes sense. And it's a fantasy story. So there's magical, fantastical elements to it as well. Yeah, it's just. I would say a really thoughtful, different perspective on how to explore the nature of divinity and of human nature by contrast, exploring really how small we are (laughs) and how little we often understand and how much the nature of God really doesn't make sense to us because we really were on a very different level than God. Okay, I think that's another reason why that story hasn't taken off in, well, at least in Western Christian circles, mm. especially the uh, Western evangelical circles. At least the vibe I tend to get is the vibe of we can know or can understand, if not everything, pretty darn close, you know? <laughs> we can get close, right? I think in evangel- evangelical circles, we tend to emphasize the aspects of God that we can connect to and the ways he can relate to us and we can downplay the aspects of God's nature that are very other from us and very different from ours. Or more relate to different cultures or different cultural understandings. What we tend to refer or to God a lot in terms of like you said, what he can do for me, what he can that he loves me. When it's like that yes, that is true, but he came for all of us. He cares for us the community and more than that yeah and for god so love the cosmos ooh. is what the actual word is yeah so heck that that's he more in. than just the world <laughs> oh my goodness so if there's aliens out there yes god works it for the good of them too so there yeah one thing i've noticed as a semi-common thread with most of these books that we've mentioned In some way or another, they fight against the modern evangelical storytelling types in terms Mm -hmm. of being either more thought-provoking, being a tragedy in the case of the Children of Hurin. In your trilogy, Tales of the Diversity, 
you bring up some very difficult emotions and mental states of being that don't have an easy answer and you don't give an easy answer. Which I think in Christian fantasy, it tends to devolve to that pretty quick. If it goes into something hard, it quickly devolves to here's the ideal outcome or the ideal way to react to this. Yeah, and I'd say till we have faces, pretty much the whole point of the book is the nature of God is difficult for us. And that's the way it should be because he's God and... We're not. We're not. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I think that's about it. Hope you've enjoyed this foray into... Some what we consider underrated books. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have some ideas as to what's an underrated fantasy book, Christian or otherwise. Feel free to leave a comment and let us and others know. And while you're at it, please leave a like and subscribe to this podcast. You know, help people know it exists and share. You can also follow us at book-bat.com and keep up with us at, it's still book-bat on Facebook. On Facebook, yeah. Is it that on Twitter too? Or is it still Carlos? I don't remember. (laughs) Whatever. It's either that or Carlos J on Twitter. You can tell we are very professional (laughs) on this. All right. And we will see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.